Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. Why was the 1970s such a pivotal decade for U.S.-Arab relations? Salim Yacoub, professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, argues that Arabs and Americans came to know each other as never before, whether in the highest levels of diplomacy, in street-level interactions, or in the imagination. In this edition of the Nixon Now Podcast, we explore the subjects with Dr. Yacoub, author of Imperfect Strangers, Americans, Arabs, and U.S. Middle Relations, U.S. Middle East Relations in the 1970s. Dr. Yacoub, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, can you give us an idea of why you, you know, why you devote yourself to this project and writing this book? My first book was on U.S. Middle East Relations in the 1950s. It uh, came out uh, about uh, a dozen years ago. And uh, for my next project, I wanted to move forward in time bring it closer to the present, and uh, I also wanted to write about a period of time that I personally remembered. Uh, I was born in 1963, so the 1970s coincided with my uh, childhood and um, teenage years, and uh, also um, during that period, pretty much the entire decade of the 1970s, I lived in the Arab world. I lived in Lebanon, so I um, had a you know, a closer look at issues relating to the U.S.-Arab relationship than someone living in the United States would have at that time and at that age. Also, um, at the time that I started the project or started thinking about a new project, this would have been in the early 2000s, a lot of new documentary material was being declassified. And um, generally speaking, the, the um, declassification process is on a 30 or 35 year lag, so you're always hearing about getting getting um, materials released on events occurring 30 or 35 years previously. So in the early 2000s, materials from the 1970s were starting to be declassified and made available. And I wanted to catch that wave of declassification and get a, um, a fresh look at, at this new material. And then finally, there was a lot of interest in the 1970s at that time. Um, previously, historians had, and others had tended to dismiss the 1970s as kind of a dull and formless interlude between the um, radical upheavals of the 1960s and the conservative restorations of the 1980s. But um, you know, by the turn of the new century, there was a growing appreciation of how important and pivotal that decade had been uh, from a whole bunch of different standpoints, the domestic politics, um, international uh, relations. And I felt that that basic insight about the pivotal nature of the 1970s certainly held true for the U.S.-Arab relationship. So I decided to, for all of those reasons, I decided to focus on the U.S.-Arab relationship in the 1970s. You talk a little bit about the materials being released. Can you, can you give us an idea of what kind of research you did uh, behind the book? Um, a, a big part of it is declassified U.S. documents. So uh, materials newly available from the Nixon, Ford, and Carter presidencies. Now, um, at the time that I did most of the research on Nixon, the materials were not yet deposited in the Nixon Library. They were still in the Nixon Presidential Materials Project at the National Archives in College Park. Um, subsequently, 
I did a little bit of uh, research at the Nixon Library itself, but m- mostly it was uh, in Washington, D.C., where I did uh, the Nixon research. Uh, also, the uh, Ford Library in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the Carter Library in Atlanta, Georgia. So um, those were the main um, uh, sources for looking at the official side of the story. I should also say the National Archives in College Park State Department records. In addition to that, I did a fair amount of research in the private collections of various historical actors, um, especially Arab American figures and organizations, because a big part of my story is the growing importance and visibility of Arab American groups and the role that they played in uh, trying to alter U.S. policy and perceptions regarding the Middle East. Perception uh, is the key word there. Much of your book deals with Arab perception and experience both in the United States Mm -hmm. and abroad. What was their perception of the U.S. uh, during the 1970s? Well, it's it's a period when people in the Arab world are becoming more focused on the United States. Uh, and vice versa. I can talk about that in a minute. Um, and mainly, it, a, it's a consequence of the growing importance of the United States to the politics of the Middle East. I mean, in broad terms, what's taking place by the end of the 1960s and the uh, beginning of the 70s is that uh, the European powers have been pretty thoroughly marginalized. Britain, France, are no longer the major players they used to be. In that vacuum, both the United States and the Soviet Union are becoming more important. I mean, this is something that has been going on for for decades, but it really kind of reaches a crescendo by the 1970s. And so the the United States is much more prominent and visible in the Arab world than it had been previously. Its um, role as Israel's primary supporter becomes both stronger and a lot more visible in the Arab world. So there's a great deal of focus on the United States um, with respect to that issue in particular. Um, The Arab-Israeli dispute is really, really um, central to the political outlook of most educated or even, you know, just politically aware people in the Arab world. So a big part of the, the Arab perception of the United States is this sense of grievance, the notion that the United States is this great power that is pushing its weight around in ways that are very unfair and um, harmful to people in the Arab world. And a major point or argument that is made to support that case is the fact that the United States is becoming increasingly supportive of Israel, both diplomatically and materially, providing economic and and military aid to Israel and uh, siding with Israel in um, various diplomatic disputes. And so, uh, you know, a big part of Arab politics has to do with um, making this case to the United States, trying in various ways to alter U.S. behavior. And, you know, it runs the gamut from fairly mild efforts to just make the case verbally to, you know, increasingly violent acts against um, the, the United States and its um, uh, allies in the region. You know, in, in discussing um, U.S.-Arab relations, what was the Nixon White House policy uh, regarding the Arab 
nations, um, generally, broadly speaking, in, at the beginning of 1969 when, uh, when Nixon is inaugurated? Um, sure. I mean, that's, uh, of course, a, a huge question because the Arab world is so vast and contains so many countries. But I guess you could say that a very basic principle um, that uh, of U.S. policy is to prevent the Soviet Union from gaining further influence in that region and making sure that the oil reserves of that region, and especially the Persian Gulf area, uh, remain accessible to um, the United States and its allies. Um, and then as uh, another major plank of U.S. policy is support for Israel and uh, this commitment that the United States has to the survival and security of Israel. And so the big challenge that uh, every uh, president in the Cold War era faces, and the Nixon administration is no exception, is reconciling those basic objectives. So I, I can say a little bit more about the, the U.S. approach to the Arab-Israeli conflict, if you like, under Nixon. Would you like me to do that? Sure. Basically, what you see in the Nixon presidency is um, a debate, uh, in many cases a pretty fierce debate, that's occurring internally over how best to approach the impasse left by the 1967 war. And in that war, Israel um, decisively defeated its Arab adversaries and occupied large portions of the Arab world. And into the early 70s, it remains in occupation of those, of those territories. The Nixon administration is divided between um, two uh, starkly different approaches. The first is the approach of Nixon's first Secretary of State, William Rogers, who um, basically takes the view that it is in the strategic Cold War interests of the United States to achieve a resolution of the Arab-Israeli dispute that involves significant concessions by Israel, that involves pressuring Israel to relinquish a large part, if not all, of the territory it occupied in the 1967 war. And the basic argument is that um, as long as Israel continues to occupy that territory, this sense of grievance that people in the Arab world have toward the United States, this perception that the United States is unfairly siding with Israel against the Arab world, will become more and more powerful. And it will um, empower um, radical forces in the region, uh, especially the uh, militant elements of the Palestinian movement, uh, which is becoming more uh, assertive at this time. And also it would give the Soviet Union an opportunity to increase its own influence and uh, perhaps even power in the Middle East. So it's in the interest of the United States to prevent that by pushing the Israelis to make some kind of some greater concessions on the territorial front. So that's the basic position that uh, William Rogers espouses. And interestingly, in the first couple of years of the Nixon presidency, Middle East policy is one of the few areas that Nixon actually tells Rogers he gets to dominate. And so Rogers makes the most of it and, and pushes really hard for some kind of a settlement that uh, requires significant concessions from Israel. Um, 
opposed to this point of view is the position of Henry Kissinger, Nixon's first national security advisor. Actually, Kissinger remains Nixon's national security advisor throughout Nixon's presidency, but that's the, that's the position that Kissinger initially holds. Only later is he also given the position of Secretary of State following the resignation of William Rogers in 1973. Um, but in those first couple of years of the Nixon presidency, uh, Henry uh, Kissinger he doesn't have a great deal of formal authority over Middle East policy, but he becomes increasingly assertive and uh, manages to push back against Rogers' approach. And Kissinger's outlook is basically that it's in the Cold War interest of the United States to stand firmly with Israel. As he sees it, uh, Israel is a client state of the United States. In the 1967 war, it decisively defeated clients of the Soviet Union, uh, namely Egypt and Syria. And uh, why should the United States put pressure on its ally to um, get, uh, make concessions to its adversaries? So he's, he's very strongly pushing back against the idea of pushing Israel to make uh, difficult concessions. And that's, that's basically the dynamic that's occurring in the um, uh, U.S.-Israeli uh, or uh, U.S. policy towards the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, the, uh, one of the other major arenas of the U.S.-Arab relationship is the uh, Persian Gulf. Um, in particular, the U.S. relationship with oil-rich Arab states in that part of the, uh, of the, of the Middle East. And um, as I suggested, a major uh, objective of the United States is to ensure that the oil reserves of those countries remain accessible to the United States and its allies. And one difficulty is that um, the politics of the Arab-Israeli conflict spill over into U.S. relations with oil-rich Arab states. What happens is that this sense of grievance against the United States in the Arab world becomes so powerful that it makes it harder for the governments of these oil-rich Arab states, which typically are monarchies or principalities, to side openly with the United States. Um, you know, these countries, these governments don't have to be, you know, all that responsive to domestic opinion because, after all, they're they're basically um, they're not democracies, but. Um, they can't ignore it completely either. And so to the extent that Arab opinion becomes more and more um, antagonistic towards the United States, the political position of those uh, pro-U.S. Arab Gulf states becomes more difficult. On the other side of the Gulf, um, the Nixon, Nixon administration forges stronger relations with Iran, giving them a preponderance of power over the Gulf states, you know, supplying weapons and funding uh, to that country to give them to give them to help to give them dominance over the Gulf to counter the Soviet threat. How did the Arab countries react to this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It, it's not one I spend a whole lot of time on because it does involve a non-Arab country. But certainly, there's a very important spillover effect from the increasingly close relationship between the United States and Iran under the Shah um, in the early 1970s. Essentially what happens is that after the British make it clear that they will uh, pull out as a, a major 
power in the Gulf region um, by the early 1970s. They announced in 1968 that in three years' time they will they will be completely out of the Gulf region. Um, once that occurs, you've got um, a lot of uncertainty over who is going to fill the vacuum left by the British, and they, um, you know, the the position that the British government itself takes, which the U.S. State Department um, initially endorses, or I should say the, the Nixon administration as a whole initially endorses, is for the uh, for Iran under the Shah to essentially share responsibility for maintaining security in that region with Saudi Arabia and other um, uh, Arab Gulf powers. But the Shah has a different idea. He, he's very strongly in favor of having Iran be essentially the sole guarantor of Western security and the, the you know the guardian of the Gulf for the for the Western nations. And over the first two or three years of the Nixon presidency, uh, the Shah you know works on the Nixon administration and basically convinces Nixon and Kissinger to back that approach. The idea of putting you know most of the eggs in the Iranian basket, so to speak. And that's basically what, what the policy that emerges by the middle of 1972. So the, um, the fact that the United States is embracing Iran in this manner uh, is, as you might imagine, resented in the Arab world. And it's certainly very deeply resented in Iraq, which is a traditional rival of Iran and is um, becoming increasingly close to the Soviet Union in the late 60s and early 70s. So um, that, that's not really all that surprising that you, know, you have an existing uh, rivalry between Iraq and Iran that is strongly exacerbated by this uh, U.S. policy of, of supporting Iran, uh, and it you know, is overlaying onto Cold War rivalries. But also what you see is some resentment against Iran on the part of other pro-U.S. Gulf powers like Saudi Arabia. Um, now, it, it's somewhat muted in the sense that you don't see you know, open conflicts between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. But definitely there's this sense among the leadership of Saudi Arabia and other you know, pro-U.S. Arab countries that the United States is making a, a serious mistake in uh, supporting Iran so completely in that it really would be better off if the United States followed a more balanced policy. That's part of the story I tell, although it's not a, a huge part of it. Looking at the relationship more regionally, you talked a little bit about this U.S.-Soviet competition over the Middle East. In 1969, um, when President Nixon comes into office, still in power is Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, considered probably the most powerful player in Middle East politics. Uh, Nixon once said that Egypt is really the key to Middle East diplomacy. What are Egypt's objectives as a part of the whole Middle East conflict, and how, how do they deal with the Nixon administration? Egypt's approach to um, the politics of the Middle East and to, to relations with the United States change over the course of this decade. You know, there, you know an overriding objective um, of Egypt is to maintain its position of dominance in the Arab world, and also after 1967 to get back the territory that Israel took from it, uh, and also, if possible, to see to it that uh, the other territories that 
Israel took in 1967 are returned as well. So at the start of my story, in the late 1960s, the president of Egypt is Gamal Abdel Nasser, um, but he dies in September 1970. So he exits the fairly fairly early in the in the decade of the 1970s. Now during his presidency, the Egyptian-U.S. relationship is is quite antagonistic um, because you know, Nasser has cultivated a close relationship with the Soviet Union. He's uh, bitterly hostile to uh, the most U.S. policies towards the Middle East, and um, he uh, really is not in a mood to be all that conciliatory toward the United States. And in the last couple of years of his presidency and, and his life, Egypt actually gets into a um, low-level conflict with Israel, known as the War of Attrition, where Egypt is essentially trying to force Israel out of the Sinai Peninsula. And, and, and the Israelis you know, push back and ultimately get to a state of affairs where Egypt has invited the Soviet Union to place surface-to-air missiles on Egyptian soil that can shoot down Israeli planes. And those missiles those surface-to-air missiles are actually manned by Soviet technicians because the Egyptians aren't trained in their use yet. And you also have um, lots of uh, Soviet aircraft flying overhead, piloted by Soviet Air Force personnel. So it's a significant escalation of the conflict where you have an actual military intervention, uh, if you will, by the Soviet Union during Nasser's lifetime. Shortly before he dies, you do have a ceasefire that, that brings the worst of this um, conflict to an end. But nonetheless, it's, it's a very um, dangerous situation. It, it kind of indicates how perilous this standoff can be and how quickly it can draw in the superpowers and become a much wider Cold War conflagration. But Nasser's successor, Anwar Sadat, ends up taking a very different approach to these issues from the one Nasser had taken. Uh, it turns out that Sadat is a lot more interested in improving relations with the United States. And over the course of, uh, of the decade, he essentially defects from the Soviet alliance and forms a, an alliance with the United States, becomes a client state of the United States by the, the late 1970s. And also, Sadat turns out to be a lot more flexible when it comes to seeking a resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And he allows the United States to step in as a mediator and basically preside over a bilateral agreement between Egypt and Israel, whereby Egypt gets back the Sinai Peninsula and makes peace with Israel in exchange. But Israel continues to occupy the remaining territories taken in 1967, and the remaining actors in the Arab world, both the Arab countries and the Palestine Liberation Organization, remain um, you know, at odds and, and you know, very bitterly opposed to Israel. So essentially you have a pretty dramatic transformation in Egypt's geopolitical position, um, where it essentially um, steps away from the rest from the Arab coalition, makes a separate peace with Israel, becomes a client state of the United States. And, and that's a pretty dramatic transformation that has all kinds of 
uh, repercussions and implications for the, the overall politics of the region. On the other side of the Arab conflict is Syria, and um, Hafez al-Assad comes into power in 1970 after being head of the Air Force and after the, mm -hmm. the, um, the PLO war that Black September in Jordan um, and after, after the, um, the then Syrian government's failure to mobilize forces properly. Why does Assad develop a less flexible position in the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Middle East conflict uh, overall? The question is, why does he develop a less flexible yeah, then position? Yeah, then say Anwar Sadat. Oh, I see. Compared, uh, I thought you were you meant compared with previous Syrian president. Mm -hmm. No, um, definitely um, Assad. He takes a more stringent view of the conflict, and his basic position, which is actually shared by most other Arab countries, is that if there's going to be any negotiation between the Arab states and Israel, if there's going to be any resolution of the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, then a number of very clear conditions have to be met. First of all, the Arab states m must remain a cohesive negotiating coalition and, and negotiate with Israel as a bloc rather than having each Arab country negotiate separately with Israel, because in that latter scenario, the Israelis can play the Arab countries off against each other. So in the name of Arab solidarity, as someone like Assad would put it, the Arab states need to stick together as a single bloc in any negotiations. And another basic uh, condition is that if there is to be a, um, a settlement, then Israel needs to relinquish all of the territory, without any exception whatsoever, that it took in 1967. And then finally, there needs to be some resolution of the Palestinian issue. And precisely what that means is often left vague and um, subject to different interpretations. But at the very least, someone like Assad would say there needs to be a, an independent Palestinian state established in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And there has to be some kind of resolution of the refugee issue where a substantial portion, if not all, of the refugees who were forced out of their homes in 1948 uh, be given the at least the option of returning to their former homes in what has become Israel. Those are pretty standard positions that most Arab governments take. The difference is the, um, you know, the willingness of any given country to interpret those positions flexibly or inflexibly. And what happens is that Sadat interprets them extremely flexibly, you know, far too flexibly from the standpoint of most other Arab countries. And Assad interprets them uh, very much at the inflexible extreme. So that would be sort of the explanation for why he's, his, his position appears to be uh, more rigid than that of, of Sadat. In fact, it is more rigid, but if you were to ask him or many other people in the Arab world why that was the case, the answer would be because he's more, um, he's truer to the principles that have been established um, in the aftermath of the 1967 war about how this conflict can conceivably be resolved. Uh, key, another key component of your book is 
Arab American activism. Um, the late 1960s and early 1970s saw a rise in uh, political activism among among uh, Arab Americans. Can you explain uh, this development? That's one of the more uh, fascinating parts of this story, in my view. Um, now, of course, there had been uh, people of Arab descent living in the United States for, for decades. Indeed, the community was first established in the late 19th century. Now, the vast majority of these people originally came from Syria or Lebanon. And uh, interestingly enough, they were uh, overwhelmingly Christian. And for most of the 20th century, you know, up until the, the late 1960s, this community, um, although it doesn't shy away from politics completely, it tends to be more reluctant to uh, take positions on Middle Eastern issues and on U.S. policy towards the Middle East. Uh, to the extent that they... Um, that their voices are heard, it's much more on uh, sort of cultural issues, and they, their associational activities are based more in churches and in civic clubs and that sort of thing, where they promote Levantine culture, cuisine, dance, uh, that sort of thing. There's some important changes that occur in the 1960s. You know, one of them is that you have a, a pretty um, radical trans uh, reform of U.S. immigration law, so that the this quota system that had existed for many decades, that tended to, or didn't tend to, it strongly favored immigrants from Western and Northern Europe, that um, system is abolished, and you have a much more equitable immigration system where it's possible for people from all over the world to immigrate to the United States in much larger numbers. And so one consequence of that is that you have a large influx of immigrants from the Middle East into the United States, and starting in the late 1960s when this new immigration system is, the new, the new immigration law is actually implemented. And then on top of that, you have upheaval in the Arab world, the Arab-Israeli War of 1967, which produces um, a fresh wave of Palestinian refugees, some of whom end up in the United States. And then a bit later, the, uh, the Lebanese Civil War, uh, causes a, an exodus of Lebanese from the country. Many of them end up in the United States. So you have a, uh, just in terms of sheer numbers, a substantial growth in the size of the Arab American community. And then on top of that, in, in addition to be, becoming larger, it's becoming more politically uh, assertive. And after the 1967 war, um, there is this real sense of shock at the magnitude of the Arab defeat, at this climate of derision and ridicule directed at the Arab world that you see in the United States. I mean, in the aftermath of this really remarkable defeat, humiliating defeat by Arab countries, you see you know, a lot of American commentators and politicians lampooning the Arab world and, you know, and basically holding it up to, to ridicule. And that really shocks a lot of Arab Americans. You know, people who had been tended to be fairly apolitical up until that time um, conclude that they really need to stand up and, and say something and, and stand up for the honor of the Arab world and uh, make the case that U.S. policy towards the Arab-Israeli conflict is one-sided, that the, the, that the Arab case in that conflict needs to be heard, that the Palestinians 
are being shafted, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's a real um, sense that Arab Americans need to step up and tell that story. So that starts to happen in the late 1960s, and it gets a further boost following the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, because that war you know, triggers an Arab oil embargo that results in a, uh, a sharp increase in the price of oil. So one major consequence is that there's a disruption in the distribution of oil throughout the industrialized world, and its most visible manifestation is um, long lines at the gas pump for a, a period of some months in late 1973 and early 1974. And so millions of Americans are quite suddenly um, being forced to at least have some inkling of what's taking place in international politics. You know, they have to face the fact that because of some conflict in the Middle East in which their own government is in some way involved, their ability to buy gas has been severely disrupted. And it's uh, in that context that Arab American groups become even more visible and assertive. And because, you know, they're able to make the case that the reason Americans can't buy gas is because the United States has taken this unfairly one-sided position on the Arab-Israeli conflict. The United States has alienated the Arab world, and oil, the, those Arab countries that produce a lot of oil are retaliating against the United States for that one-sidedness. And so the, it, it, the conflict gives Arab Americans an opportunity to make that case. And, and also, because there's just a lot of uh, public interest in this issue, the news media is more receptive to having Arab Americans and other people who are essentially arguing the Arab position appear on radio shows and in newspaper interviews and so forth to make the case. So there's, there's an opportunity to, uh, for Arab Americans to make their voices heard, and they, they take advantage of it as, as, you know, to the extent that they, they can. You were talking about the, the oil embargo not only did it, you know, that it affect immediately the relations between the United States and those oil-producing countries, but it also had a very long-term effect. The United States had to reconfigure its whole energy policy, um, and it had to change the way it dealt with Arab countries. Um, it introduced something mm -hmm. called it introduced this something called the petrodollar. Could you explain in the long term how, you know, what was the petrodollar and what and and how did U.S.-Arab relations change for the long term after that? after that embargo? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question, and it's something I talk uh, about in the book. Um, you know, one consequence of the series of events relating to the 1973 war is that you have a major spike in the price of oil. In the space of a couple of months, the price of oil basically quadrupled. And even after the war ends and after the, the embargo is suspended, the very high price of oil remains in place. And it actually holds steady for the next several years. There's a, there's a, a subsequent spike that occurs um, following the Iranian Revolution uh, as a consequence of the disruption and oil shipments that uh, that event brings about. So what you see for the, basically for the rest of the decade, from 1973 on, 74 on, is vast increase in the price of oil, which means that oil-rich countries and especially countries in the Persian Gulf region, have much larger revenues than before. 
they have all this disposable income, and they need something to do with it. And one thing that they do is invest it in the United States. And just you know, because of the size of the U.S. economy, the United States becomes a, a major destination for the investment of oil money or petrodollars, as, as that money becomes uh, known as. And so what you see is kind of an interesting response in the United States where – on the one hand, there are plenty of people who who think this is a good thing. They, you know, the United States is suffering economic difficulties of its own, um, you know, stagflation and all that kind of stuff. And so, the fact that oil-rich Arab countries are investing in the United States is seen as a good thing. And there are, you know, plenty of people who want to get their hands on on that petrodollar um, income. And, you know, there are other ways in which people welcome this. So, for example, American universities are increasingly becoming the recipients of money from the Arab world for the purpose of establishing Middle East studies programs. So the, the university administrators uh, generally welcome this um, this money. But there there's a contrary view, which is to look at this phenomenon with a great deal of suspicion uh, there's this fear that wealthy Arabs are coming in and buying up the country and uh, thereby gaining control over the nation's uh, economic, cultural, and you know, perhaps even political life. Um, there's a, you know, a lot of attention paid to um, various purchases that wealthy Arabs make um, and uh, important landmarks, you know, Rockefeller Center, or, you know, things like that that are being purchased by Arab investors or in some way coming under the economic uh, control of Arab actors, and a lot of anxiety um, over, over that phenomenon. I mentioned uh, universities taking money from the Arab world to set up Middle East studies programs. There are instances where you know, countries that are um, viewed very negatively in the United States for understandable reasons, you know, kind of like Libya or uh, Iraq, which, you know, even back then, had a very radical and um, uh, government that was quite hostile to the United States. Uh, when countries like Libya and Iraq donate money to um, American universities to set up Middle East studies programs, that uh, raises a, a pretty you know, big stink. And you, in in the case of those two donations, the university actually had to give the money back because the the political backlash was so strong. And you also see this reflected in the uh, ad scam sting operation of the late 1970s, which is um, actually it's a, it's a case where no Arabs are actually involved. Um, it's basically a, an imaginary scenario where the the FBI creates this scenario in which there's this fictional Arab company that is you know run by this very wealthy Arab who is trying to purchase favors from politicians in Washington. So FBI agents dress up as wealthy Arabs and offer bribes to American congressmen who take the money thinking that it is coming from the, this uh, wealthy Arab. And uh, of course, they then are, um, are, are arrested. So the fact that such a sting operation was conceived at all suggests that the notion of wealthy Arabs coming in to buy up the country was very widely accepted. 
and the, the FBI came to the conclusion that that would be a really good way to fool members of the U.S. Congress, just because that, that narrative had required so much strength and credibility. My, my final question, what was the legacy left in U.S. Arab relations during this period of time? I guess going back to your book, how, how ultimately did Americans and Arabs start to understand each other? Uh, that's, of course, a, a complicated question, too. And I break it down in the book in, into kind of a, a dual legacy, where uh, on the one hand, you do see a much more antagonistic overall relationship emerging as a consequence of the geopolitics of the 1970s, where uh, you know, largely as a consequence of the failure to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict, but for, for other reasons as well, the um, sense of antagonism toward the United States on the part of people throughout the Arab world becomes increasingly powerful as you move into the 1980s, 90s, and, and into our um, century. And one manifestation of that anti-U.S. sentiment is the you know, emergence of international terrorism. As a, as a serious threat, and the growing willingness of you know some figures in the Arab world to uh, launch attacks against the United States and its allies, and that in turn causes the United States to become more prone to intervene militarily in order to address that threat. And the manner in which the United States wields military power in the Middle East and in the Arab world generates new antagonism. And which takes the form of fresh attacks against the United States, and so the the it's this vicious circle that just keeps keeps going, and you know very we're very much living with that legacy right now, um, and you don't see a whole lot of of overt violence occurring between Americans and Arabs in the 1970s, but what happens in the 1970s is sort of a, a diplomatic and geopolitical uh, predicate for. Uh, this later pattern of actual direct violence unfolding in the decades since. Um, now, there's also a, a more positive legacy, and a lot of it has to do with the transformations taking place in the United States itself, and it having to do with the emergence of this Arab-American community that I talk about in the book, um, which is that even though there is, of course, a great deal of anti-Arab and anti-Muslim sentiment in the United States, and in, at certain times it's, it seems to be the dominant um, attitude. Nonetheless, there is a greater willingness on the part of people in the United States, including people you know, very much in the American mainstream, to push back against that kind of animosity, to say that it's, you know, that it's not appropriate, that it doesn't reflect American values. I'm arguing that a lot of that is rooted in kind of a transformation in American consciousness about the region that occurs in the 1970s. I mean, essentially what occurs in the 1970s is that these two peoples, Americans and Arabs, you know, writ large, get to know each other in ways that they hadn't previously. So there's this new a mutual awareness, this new intimacy that arises, and it has a negative and a positive form. And you know, the negative form is, is the very obvious sense of antagonism that I talked about, but 
the more positive manifestation, which sometimes is difficult to discern, but I would argue is is very much there, uh, is this uh, greater willingness on the part of people in the United States to to, to view people in the Arab world as 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 human beings who, you know, whose political and other aspirations are uh, worthy of some respect. The book is called Imperfect Strangers, Americans, Arabs, and U.S. Middle East Relations in the 1970s. Dr. Yacoub, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was a real pleasure.